and welcome Come on in, come on in The fire is hot, the water is a-falling There's a seat for everyone, there's a mic for everyone Come on in, Come back home 
Eshu is the respected elder who flogs, confronts, and uncovers fools. That one versed in mysteries uses truth to own you. He causes scatter to feed poverty. Obatala shakes rascals to have sacrifice. The owner of warnings is the one who is Eshu. Aboru, aboye, aboshishe, ashe. May I ever reach our room? May our ever be accepted? May our ever allow what we desire to come to pass? And so we say, ashe, ashe, oh, ashe. And for those who are unfamiliar with, with Yoruba and, and Ifa, your ebo is a sacrifice. Your ebo is a sacrifice. And sometimes I like to say your homework. For indeed, if you make ebo, indeed, if you do your homework, we find the manifestation and the remanifestation of that which mirrors our own image. Divine, all blessed peace and love, joy and prosperity to each and every one of you. You are now listening and sitting and watching live with the Divine Prince, Pan-African spiritualist, practitioner, author, advisor, Elagun Oloye, Hudu Obeya Bokur, sharing with you in all things spiritual, mystical, metaphysical, cosmic, universal, evolutionary, revolutionary, healing, and holistic from a Pan-African hoodoo, world spiritualist perspective, understanding that all is truly and indeed a blessing. If you can just see beyond the veils, for it is all just an illusion and a test are one of the greatest divine mysteries of this life cycle. This is indeed my constant prayer, my mantra, my affirmation, my reverberation, my reiteration, and it is my ever-living reality. And it is crucial as a philosophy, as a mantra, it is crucial to the very foundation of my understanding, my walk, my works, my demonstration along this divine, all-blessed life path and journey. It is how I, the divine prince, make sense. Out of all that we're challenged with, all that we're challenged with here in this daily existence on Mother Father Earth, and it is my personal place of power and understanding. The place where, from where I begin, the place from where I realize and crystallize all my endeavors, understanding that I and I alone create and co-create my divine destiny, and I and I alone create and co-create my divine, all-blessed reality. And so it is. Ashe. 
I welcome you this Monday, September 21st. I think it's the first day of fall, 2020. Where did the summer go? Where did the spring go? Did COVID-19 just suck up, you know, the summer? And, and now we're at fall, and New Orleans is having this shady, rainy, cool fall kind of weather that we're really not used to. It'll be summer again, of course, by the weekend. But we ain't used to this this early in the season. And so I'm always grateful to the powers of nature for indeed there is no voodoo without nature. I am indeed grateful to God and the goddess, the the divine creators, those that came before and created all, not just humanity, all life, all nature, all that we know, and understand in our limited knowing and understanding. I watched a documentary the other day, probably one of those uh, alien enthusiast programs, and um, they talked about humanity, the smartest of humanity, the, the Einsteins of humanity, math, science, if you will, that we only know 5% of all matter that exists in the universe. So even in our wealth of knowledge and understanding, from a collective perspective, there's still a whole range, a 90 to 95% range of what I call God, what science might call dark matter, that's out of our range of awareness, that's out of our range of understanding. And it literally altered my already well studied understanding about inter and intra-dimensional time space and how we as spirits, humans that possess part of God, part of divinity, spirits, how we interact, go in and out of these domains really fluidly, whether you're conscious of it or not. If we follow the science, the math, 95% of us are not conscious of it, are not aware. And so you have concepts like 5% and 10% and percentages that relate to mystery and unknown and yet untapped information. So I want to talk today about (laughs) shape-shifting. I want to talk about shape-shifting. And, you know, as always, when I do these shows, I, I do my homework. Before I come with a show like this, I do my own research before I come with a show like this. I I look to see what's there and what's available before I do a show like this. And so in researching this topic, I I became aware of the the fact that shape-shifting is not unique to Western culture or or civilization, America or UK or or Japan or anything modern. When we think about vampires, when we think about werewolves, you know, we think about entertainment, we think about fantasy, we we think about fairy tales, but there are indeed footprints of were creatures and shapeshifters throughout creation throughout ethnic, cultural tradition, 
as we know it and as it has been documented on the planet, that which we can't document, record, take a lab test for, write a book about, you know, has then been left in stone, like the pyramids, for instance, which we are still trying to decode, like Machu Picchu, which we are still trying to decode. But there are some things that are just passed down inherently through the generations, through time, through the bloodline, through the ancestors, to the next ear, to the next generation, to the next mind. And so there is a footprint that goes all the way back to documenting humanity about shape-shifting. And so we're clear, humans taking on other forms beyond just themselves. Now, something I found um, during my research, magic and the supernatural in the African-American slave culture and society. We often talk about the enslaved African, that experience, its effect on us in terms of consciousness, how we think, how we view God, how we view the creative universe that we have access to, et cetera, et cetera. And as we continue to evolve archaeology, science, knowledge, and awareness, we get new information. And so I like to keep up with schools and universities and at the academic level about how not just voodoo, but ATR, African traditional religious systems, that's an acronym that was very popular 15 years ago. Uh, It is not quite as popular today because it says African traditional religious systems. And some of you are trying to flee religion, forgetting that we created religion. Africa created religion. Let's be clear. We created religion. And so religion in itself is not corrupt. It's the application of religions that are corrupt. And religions that have been built upon corruption. So I like to look at what we knew, what we understood, what we remembered, and what would have then transferred here to the Americas. You've heard me say before that if we could count in Fon, if I can count in Airway, if I can count in Igbo, if I can count in Hausai, if I can count in Yoruba and understand math in my ethnic native tongue, then I'm only now being forced through the Middle Passage, through enslavement, to reinterpret what I know into Portuguese, into Spanish, into French, ultimately into into English. So I like to look for the footprint of spiritual practice beyond the organized religion that was being sort of impressed upon us in some cases and reinforced in other cases and look at what's indigenous. Part of that journey, if I can just sidetrack for a quick minute, it's still relevant. Um, It's just how amazed I am at what is contained within Islamic culture. Um, We we tend to see Islam and Islamic culture through a Western eye, of course, through through the eye of of the media and the government and and, and a lot of negative imagery. Uh, But it's interesting as I do this study the voodoo, I'm going to call it voodoo, <laughs> that is present in Morocco, 
in in uh, ethnically Islamic regions. Um, some would say that Iba Arisha, Iba Ifa, Afa, Fa divination came from the Arab slave trade. Now I'm yet to find that documentation for myself, but I've been told that that information is out there that binary coded system came from the Arabs. Now it would make sense if we think about how numbers transferred from Arab culture to the West. So it would be logical, but I'm still looking for, you know, that document, that archaeology, that footprint. And I'm sure it's out there. I just haven't come across it yet. But I came across Slave Culture and Society by Maura McNamara. And please forgive me my chat as well as my blog talk radio um, because I want to share a great deal of information with you. And so I'm not always looking directly at the screen. So please forgive me. Greetings, Craig Burns. Give me a second here to catch up with my chat. Yes, yes, Shamafia. Yes, Shandra C. I'm already on it. I say it all the time that I have the most erudite podcast audience um, out there. This particular audience, uh, we are diverse in our knowledge. We are diverse in our awareness. We are diverse in our cultural and and ethnic um, experiences here. And so this platform ain't popular to everybody. And I say it almost every day now. I'm not here to be popular. I'm not here to be popular. I'm here to be a truth teller. I'm here to be a truth speaker as it relates to ATR. And particularly as it manifests in those of us who made our way through the Middle Passage and now have been born and reborn here in this America. Although historians have previously explored the role of magic in the African-American culture, the more specific question of how slaves defined supernatural agency from their own perspective has yet to be investigated. The purpose of this research is to examine slave folklore and personal testimonies about the paranormal to ascertain the beliefs and practices of spiritualism among enslaved people in the antebellum American South, analyzing how these sources portray instances of bewitchment, voodooism, and spiritual possession, I assess their impact on the slave experiences. Furthermore, I investigate the inconsistency between evil spirits, inhabitants of slave individuals cited in oral histories with the protective and healing conjuration activities attributed to slaves in the secondary sources. While folks, while folk tales cite victimization by voodoo or bewitchment as punitive measures and, and former slave interviews depict fear affiliated with presumed witches and spirits, Supernatural practitioners were highly regarded within their communities. Thus, in evaluating how slaves understood the supernatural to reconcile its negative connotation 
within a culture that simultaneously embraced magical practices. And we've talked about this before here on this show in this format, sort of the ideas of power embedded in a, in a practice that could otherwise be seen as dangerous, volatile, then reinforced by the Haitian Revolution, of course, the idea that voodoo leads to revolt, voodoo leads to revolution. But there's another aspect to it. I understand we had no doctors, we had no medical facilities, we had no birthing systems beyond that which we created for ourselves. Otherwise, we were treated like chattel. Otherwise, we were treated worse than the cow, the goat, the pig, if you will. There are even documented footprints of Big Mama, the nanny, Uncle Joe, healing members of the house, healing master's family, handling the cold, the flu, the infection. And remember now, we're going through a pandemic right now, but there were great pandemics 100 years ago, 120 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago. There, there were great pandemics that we survived, that we lived through because of this knowledge, this power, this information that was both demonized but widely sought after at the same time. Much has been written about the African-American religious experience that highlights the importance of magic in slave culture. These sources demonstrate that practices associated with spirit worship were incorporated into the slaves' daily routines, such as healing rituals, conjuration practices, and religious veneration. However, the question of how slaves actually perceived supernaturalism is rarely addressed in books. Historians have been more inclined to examine the creation of a distinct slave religion, structured in part by their lost heritage and in part by their new world experiences. To that end, Researchers have interpreted slave narratives and music, missionary records, and folk tales to understand slave theology and its function in the community. Despite the number of books published in this era, no single work provides a definitive view of slave religion, probably because this topic is too broad and complex to address in a single book. Historians who have attempted this feat have actually narrowed their scope, resulting in an emphasis on one feature of slave culture while perhaps overlooking others. Thus, this work focuses on religion and relationship to spirits in the slave society of the Southern American states in order to deduce what the slaves believed about the supernatural world. The first scholar to investigate the origins of magic in the African-American slave culture was Albert Robito, who documented his findings in Slave Religion, a book called Slave Religion, The Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South. Slave Religion, colon, The Invisible 
instruct in the invisible institution in the antebellum South. He argues that the African styles of worship, ritual forms, and beliefs have survived in North America because of the openness of the religions to synchronization with other traditions, amalgamating, voodoo being hidden in Catholic statuary, for instance. He explained how certain aspects of African culture, such as spiritual possession and other magical folk beliefs that can be interpreted as supernatural, were carried to North America through the Atlantic slave trade. He then traced how these original African notions of spirituality were incorporated into slave society and maintained despite conversion to Christianity, despite conversion to Catholicism. Robito, and that's spelled R-A-B-O-T-E-A-U, Robito was the first to analyze folklore slave narratives and missionary records in an effort to understand the breadth of slave religion and how the gods of Africa gave way to the God of Christianity. By, <clears throat> by examining these sources, <clears throat> excuse me, by examining these sources, he successfully articulates the relationship between the natural and supernatural in slave religion. This focus on the intersection of the slaves' culture, African heritage, with their new faith, however, led him to overlook practices that contradicted Christianity. So Robito neglected to discuss how conjuration and voodoo beliefs about wandering souls and guardian spirits directly opposed the monotheism espoused by the church. By demonstrating how newfound Christianity and African traditions merged harmoniously into a creative and unique slave religion, Robito ignored contradictory spiritual beliefs and thus provided a limited analysis of magic in slave society. And as I said in the opening, when, when we discuss shape-shifting, and, and not just humans who change you know, into to the werewolf or, or change into the dog or the cat or the bird. And, and there are documented stories of, of this going back to the antebellum South, but also changing into objects, changing into plants or, or trees or, or even a rock. There's one story among the Ibu here in the States that talk about flying slaves. Africans enslaved who, who literally flew away, who, who lifted up off the plantation and, and flew away. So we know that there is a footprint for spirituality that does not necessarily jive with Christianity or Catholicism or, or even Islam in terms of slavery. We, we neglect Islam um, way too much when we had this conversation about enslaved Africans. So when I look at cultures like Ar Argentina, a fox-like werewolf called a, a labizon, as well as were jaguars known as runa uturungus, Brazil has this Batu 
a river dolphin that transforms into a little boy, or a irapuru, a small brown bird that transfers into a little boy. But we find shape-shifting in Bulgaria, in Canada, in Chile, the, the chan-chan shapeshifter is a kalku or sorcerer that transforms into a mythical bird that announces bad luck. It has the shape of a human head with feathers, talons, and big ears that it uses as wings. We find shapeshifters in China. We find shapeshifters in France. We find shapeshifters in Ethiopia, Morocco, Tanzania, Zabadas or Budas is a sorcerer blacksmith that changes into a were hyena. It often wears an ornament from its human form by which it may be recognized. And again, that's Ethiopia, Morocco, Tanzania. We find shapeshifters in Finland. We find shapeshifters in Greece. We find shapeshifters in Haiti and Iceland, India, Indonesia, Ireland, Scotland, Italy, Japan. We find shapeshifters in Kenya, the Ilumu is a man-eating shapeshifter that starts out as an animal, can shift into the form of a man. Uh, in Latavia, in Lithuania, in Mexico, uh, among the Native Americans, they call them skinwalkers who can change from various forms, uh, from human to, to animal, typically. Native Hawaiians, in Normandy, France, in Normandy and Sweden, uh, Panama, Persia, the Philippines, Portugal, Russia. There are many places in the world, including New Orleans, Louisiana, or I should say Louisiana proper, where we have Lugaru, which is said to be a shapeshifter, sort of a were creature, a werewolf, werewoman creature uh, that you might encounter in, in the swamps, that you might encounter in the more rural area. Uh, but I tell you, there are tales right here in the French Quarter <laughs> of vampires, of shapeshifters, of people disappearing in the quarters, particularly around Halloween, particularly around your, your favorite witchy-like events and activities and, and stories of people just disappearing. Um, some of you are aware of, of a gruesome story that happened right after um, Hurricane Katrina Next to Priestess Miriam up there on Rampart Street, and the guy cut up his wife, and, and had parts of her were in the pot on the stove, parts of her were in the oven. You know, so the, the idea of humans shape shifting from not just animal, human to animal, but into other forms, other items, other organic material is not a new sort of modern concept. It's something that's been around um, since the document humanity, since humanity started telling ghost stories and, and, and passing down uh, legends. Greetings, uh, Neophyte Vokur. Welcome, beloved. Greetings, greetings. Always a pleasure to speak with you. I'm honored and grateful, humbled in service. Yeah, I love this topic. I mean, it, it's one of those things that gets kind of talked around but never talked about. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, uh, I think one of my favorite examples as far as uh, uh, African based deities that we can uh, appreciate as wisdom bringers is Kwaku uh, Anansi. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Anansi, one of the yeah. greatest yeah. shapeshifters yeah. Uh, to ever hit our shores, and be and be changed into what we know as uh, Bugs Bunny, right, or Brer Rabbit. Yes. You know, um, you go from there, or or it, once he hits the shores of Japan, he he becomes the fox. When he hits uh, Hawaii or the Polynesian Islands, he is Moana's uh, uh, ancestor. Um, um, uh, 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 Maui as the shapeshifter, you know, the, it, it, these, these are awesome topics that really kind of get demonized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when they're in like France, they're, they're praised as being storytellers. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it's more to it than just skinwalkers in the Navajo nation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it, awesome, awesome. Yeah, it's 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 universal to humanity. The, the, the yeah. story of shapeshifters. Um, Yvonne Shiro, on the contrary to Robito's book, directly addresses Robito's admission in her book called Black Magic: Colon, Religion and the African American Conjuring Tradition. Black Magic. Religion and the African-American Conjuring Tradition, in which she seeks to reconcile the conflicts between slave magic and slave religion. Unlike Robito, she examines both the dissonance and convergence between the two tenets and argues that these practices have been experienced as a single unit within the African-American cultural experience, resisting the tendency to polarize religion and magic. Shiro concluded that magic coexisted with Christianity as an alternative means to communicate with the spirits. She suggested that these seemingly divergent traditions have worked together in a complicated, sometimes complementary fashion to provide spiritual empowerment for the enslaved African. In investigating a cultural effect that is often overlooked by both scholars and the general public. Shiro relied on personal antidotes about voodoo, root working, folk stories, works, progress administration interviews, and post-reconstruction newspapers to show how magic became embedded in the African-American culture. And although she makes an effective argument that magic is an integral part of slave religion, she does not explain how slaves understood the supernatural. In arguing that religion and magic are linked, Shiro does not distinguish religious practices influenced by Christianity from the existing repertoire of supernatural healing and punishment Rituals. We know if we are familiar with uh, Egungun and Ancestral Masquerade and, and Galette Day and, and Pyro, there's a great deal of um, uh, righteous judgment that comes through these, these demonstrations. Uh, if someone has violated, someone's committed murder, someone has, you know, done something egregious, you know, the, the Egunguns and, and the uh, dead spirits inhabited in these masquerades sort of come out at night. Under, under cover of darkness, and these people are, are dealt with. Uh, in some cases, they disappear, uh, not to be seen again. This ambiguity 
between supernatural healing and, and punishment rituals and Christianity, in addition to her interchangeable use of the words magic, conjure, supernatural, leaves the reader unclear about what black magic really is. And that's why sometimes I'm really worked up about witchcraft and sort of this new idea of the black witch, which would be fine if people were operating from a place of understanding, understanding, but you're operating from a place of Western-induced, Christian-influenced, you know, with all of its biases and, and, and whatnot. Sometimes we do things opposite of, you know, in somehow a way to sort of sever that tie, but, but you're still reinforcing it through things that otherwise we would be judged for, condemned for, in truly indigenous cultures. Um, so how we interchange magic and conjure uh, and, and voodoo, uh, but, but when we want to be safe, we, we say healing and heal herbs. You know, we, we use safer, you know, I'm a spiritualist, sounds safer than I'm a voodoo priest. <laughs> you know, uh, people make the sign of the cross when they pass me. People make the sign of the cross, you know, when they drive past my house because of this black magic connection to witchcraft and demonology and an attempt to sort of compress our traditions, indigenous world traditions through this really narrow cipher, which is a Eurocentric cipher or a Western cipher. Um, like Chereau, Charlotte Fett describes the origins of slave practice without providing an explanation for what magic meant to those who practiced it. And her work is called In Working Cures. In, I-N, Working Cures. C-U-R-E-S. Colon, Healing, Health, and Power in Southern Slave Plantations. I'm going to say it again for my literary folks. In Working Cures, colon, Healing, Health, and Power in Southern Slave Plantations, FET offers a more detailed description of African-American healing practices, such as herbalism, conjuring, midwifery, and describes how that became art of resistance in the antebellum South. She shows how enslaved men and women drew an African presidents, drew on African presidents to develop a view of health and healing that was distinctly at odds with the slaveholders' property concerns. So remember, we were property. So any concerns about our health, our physical well-being, because they didn't care about your mental well-being as long as you told the line, for them was a property concern. So while white slave owners narrowly defined slave health in terms of soundness for labor, slaves believed health was intimately tied to religion and community. African-American healing practices functioned both to nurse the body and as a tactic of rebellion against the whites. Fett found that the revered role of female root workers 
on a plantation in, in the plantation health cultures gave them the authority and the status within these enslaved communities. And, and as I said before, if, if you can heal the cold, heal the flu, you know, fix the, 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 the uh, brother or sister who, you know, got a, a thorn in their finger, you know, because you got to work. They don't care about you being in pain. They don't care about you being on your menstruation. They don't care about you aging. They don't give a damn. You know, it, it's the lash of the whip, and you bring in whatever amount of produce or whatever your job was. They, they didn't care about your overall sense of well-being. So as a result, power struggles arose between slaves doctoring women and the white plantation owners. By examining the dynamics of plantation healing, Fett sheds new light on the hierarchy of power in antebellum American slavery. Although she provides a comprehensive view of healing in the slave community, Fett focuses on the correlation between health or healing attributes and power rather than the spiritual means behind them. Her book is used for investigating what healing rituals existed but does not explain why they were employed. Um, we also talk, uh, Neophyte Book Corps, I'm sure you remember, about Big Mama or even Big Papa in some cases who cooked the food. Oh, yeah. So you get used to the food. You need the food, and you got a particularly good cook because you couldn't be no bad cook and be in the house. You'd lose your life. No. You had to be a good cook. But we know that it's underdocumented poisoning, you know, conjuring, you know, white women lost babies, whole families lost children, lost lost loved ones, you know, behind who cooked the food and how they mm-hmm. felt about the conditions in that moment, in that time. So it was always this this warring of good and evil, if you will, in yeah. terms of how they viewed us and our connection to, to God or to spirit. If that's not a big enough, um, or if, if that is too big a step for anyone in the audience who is actually taking in any of this information, um, let's um, take into consideration Marcus Garvey's female division of his UN, uh, UNIA, um, UNIA, the Women's League or version of it, were all healers, were all um, um nurses, practitioners, and, and, and doctors, if you will, that wouldn't have been acknowledged in the medical field. But for Marcus Garvey, this was the Black Cross, right? Literally, their name was the Black Cross, not the Red Cross, not the Blue Cross, not Blue Shield, the Black Cross, right? And I, I have rarely found enough information to share with people about that um, about that division. So if you need to understand what the Divine Prince is actually talking about, let's start with that and work our way further back into the past so that we can have a better understanding of the, the, the skill that it took to be a root worker, to be a healer, to, to be a cook. Mm-hmm. The reason why you have pots in your magic in the first place is because of that for that reason, like like that, right there. I, I don't know really how to explain it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but I, I'm just hoping that I can add a little bit to 
the the profound thought that you're that you're sharing with everybody right now, especially myself. Listen, I'm hearing you. you, you let me let me say what I believe I heard you say. I'm gonna use my Iyanla Van Zant words. What I heard. I'm gonna put myself on mute. What I heard you say was. Magic starts with what you eat. Starts with what you eat. Even before you get to defensive magic and, and negative magic and retributive magic and, and, and creative magic, with what you eat. So you can mimic all the books, all the rituals, all the ceremonies that you want. But if you aren't eating in accordance to your work, and, and those of you who are practicing a more traditional form of, of Ifa, who understand an Odu has components connected to it. And some of those components have everything to do with what you eat or don't eat in a period of time to produce this result that we sometimes call conjuring, that we sometimes call magic, that we sometimes call voodoo. And indeed, it's it's nature. It's an output. It's a manifestation of nature. Um, and let's not limit nature to just the trees and the, and the dirt and the roots. You know, nature is the universe. Nature is all that we have access to. And if I can add to, uh, to that part, um, I heard you say the word mimic, which coincidentally is associated with the, the idea of shapeshifter. When you start looking at it, as far as the definition, you can't avoid the word mimic. So if you're if you find yourself mimicking or copying or parroting these things naturally, where you hear somebody who is speaking a wise word and you start copying what they're doing, you are now a mimic. You are a shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. Just by definition alone. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And then the next one That's the next right. one is um in nature Let's look at the elements. Um, let's say uh, the ship, the Queen Mary. One of my favorite things to break bring up is um, the fact that it was used in so many different ways that it it qualifies as a shapeshifter. The ship itself has morphed into different functions and has taken on a characteristic of itself. Um, that and it transported a lot of voodoo practitioners, but you know we won't go into that too much. But <laughs> Um, Why not? <laughs> okay, let's go. Um, there was a woman on the ship that was transported from the, the from Europe into the Americas, um, and when she was transported um, at a time where World War II was just ending, mm-hmm. um, the Queen Mary was also known as the Grey Ghost. The Grey Ghost was on Hitler's most wanted list to be destroyed by its. Um, both its Luquapa and the um, and the, the Wolfberg, the the submarine division, but they could never catch this ship. Some would say that it was blessed by a booty queen to be the fastest on the water, who was um, a, a student, if you will, of either a uh, Calypso or Mamawata, right? So a ship to still hold this, the world record for a fastest cruise liner to ever hit the waters and still to this day holds that record. And it doesn't even have an engine in it anymore. <laughs> I'm, just, uh, I'm just saying there's a touch there of your African culture that you can look into and see that rumor and speculation is where 
this stuff lives mm-hmm. and thrives. Right? You have to kind of dig into it a little bit. Yeah, that's right. And I like the, the, the idea that you brought up. I wasn't going to go there, but you, but you went there. You know, oh, yeah, um, yeah. I've talked about it on previous shows, how, you know, as a Labor Day Virgo, um, I'm very tuned in to detail. I, I pay attention to detail. And I can remember detail over, over long periods of time. So let's use social media as an example. I, I remember 2005. I remember Yahoo 360, MySpace, some of the places that we operated in in those times, Ning, the, the, I-N, the N-I-N-G network, Ning. Um, and people came in as one thing. And at that time, Dr. York was popular at that time. Uh, this was right after the, the raid in, in, in Georgia. His community had sort of spread out you know, into the South, if you will. And now they were setting up a, a footprint um, on, on the internet. There was also this other guy, um, Noble Somebody, not Noble Drew Ali, but another Noble Somebody who kept changing his name. Some of you know who I'm talking about. He became this Noble Sex God, something or another. Uh, he yeah, ended, like Prince Noble something or other. Yeah, yeah. he ended up in Chicago and, and had ended up with some beef in the community because of the way he had been treating some of the women and and some of those children. So if you're paying attention, we see shapeshifters every day. And and sometimes it's, you know, well, I'll set up a new profile with another name. I'll set up a new profile, you know, with no picture, you know, and, and it's all these different manifestations of one individual. Um, we see people sort of jump religion and jump, from culture to culture and jump from practice to practice. Now, this is not the same as, you know, I'm learning, I'm gathering as I go along. You know, we're not talking about that. I'm talking about shapeshifters now, people who can take on a full form of people, you know, purple people one day and can be Muslim the next day and can be Rasta the next day and can be Orisha the next day, you know, and, and can be an American without an identity, you know, the following day. So we, we see that level of shape shifting right now, right now. We also see it being played up to by way of media, uh, television, even the news to some degree. And, and, and how they now are Bill Gates. Bill Gates. And how they're now sort of feeding that, fanning the fire, if you will, of this sort of shape-shifting behavior out in, right in our face, really. Right in our face. And, and we have the choice to either accept it or not accept. Um, I, I think the choice is to be able to see or, or to not see, uh, especially for the individual who's spiritual, whose third eye is supposed to be open, who's supposed to be Conscious, you know, these are all tags, labels that sometimes shapeshifters can take on. Yeah, I think um, uh, Mr. Gates um, is probably one of the biggest uh, examples of shapeshifters I've ever met in my life. I mean, we we exonerate him to this 
elevated status of being so educated, but mm-hmm. he just failed to realize that this man dropped out of Harvard. He's a dropout. I mean, like, literally, like, he didn't graduate. He has an honorary degree. I mean, how did he manage to do that? I mean, there's plenty of people that have managed to actually get an honorary degree, but but to be elevated to the status that he is that he is in, um, and then the thing is that he studies. Mm-hmm. He's studying mosquitoes, releasing mosquitoes, uh, uh, his own kind of what do you call it, a, a, a GMO mosquito, yeah. to help to help fight off. Uh, certain flies and, and other pests in our food. I think we also need to be concerned about nanotechnology. Uh, right, another field under his study. Mm-hmm. So, so put your mosquitoes or your insects and nanotechnology together. Uh, right. So, so bug takes on a whole new meaning. That fly, right. that mosquito, might be a camera. Might be a, a, a computer. What, what do you call the uh, the device that you send to other planets? A probe. A probe, yeah. <laughs> you know. Now I'm not trying to scare y'all. I'm just <laughs> telling you what's I'm available. To, <laughs> you know. This. I mean, the the mosquito is nature's hypodermic needle. I mean, that that's fact, right? And it's very easy to copy um, the at, at this point in time to copy the nature of its abilities to be able to um, transport or um, download and upload genetic information mm-hmm. because it's equipped to be able to feed on genetic material. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, these are, these are like kind of small details that kind of get overlooked in the nature of the thing. Right, like this mosquito goes and bites a, a a bat or whatever, and then it goes and bites a human. And then you go, you transport it rabies. I don't know, just a theory, I guess. But you're you're definitely diving into the realm of uh, mimic or skinwalkers or uh, shapeshifters. There's a whole nature of a vampire in the first place is to shapeshift the the uh, this is old, old or, information or, that yeah. our ancestors already had a huge uh, wealth of knowledge um, about, and kind of passed yeah. it along to a point where it's in our, it's it inherent in our minds. We just have to figure out how do we unlock it so that we know what it, what it is that we're looking at. Yeah, the idea I, of, of vampire is not is not Eurocentric historically. We had vampires in Africa. We had yeah. shapeshifters in Africa. We had were creatures, male, female, young and old, you know, in, in, in the indigenous communities. New, New Bell Niles Puckett, on the other hand, explores the spiritual motivation of, of enslaved Africans in a, in a book called Folk Beliefs of the Southern Negro. Folk Beliefs of the Southern Negro. Puckett analyzes slave folk tales that give insight into the social and cultural milieu from which black spiritual traditions were derived. He refers to these stories as antiques 
and mental heirlooms that function both to record daily lives of slaves or enslaved Africans and provide an escape where they can remember their roots. His book states that the slave society's harming and curative techniques are derived from widely circulated folk tales. Puckett suggests that the superstitions and themes discussed in these tales are manifest in actual practices. He uses stories such as one about a boy who develops a relationship with a snake during a drought and another about the hooting of owls when the devil comes out to explain the origins of actual practices like the hanging of a snake to make it rain and the symbolism of an owl as an omen. Puckett does an excellent job of demonstrating how the cultural attitudes reflected in folk tales were integrated into the slave community lifestyle. Joseph Williams also draws primarily on folk tales in his research for his New York Times article. And the article is called Black Magic Among Dark People. Black Magic among dark people. And again, this was uh, research for a New York Times article, Black Magic Among Dark People, in which he analyzes the prevalence of voodoo and obia within the black community. He traces the origins of these practices to early 17th century, early 17th century serpent worship in Haiti and attributes their presence in North America to rebellion attempts. Now, my regular list is nowhere I'm about to go. The snake worshiping, the snake ceremony happened here in New Orleans, not in Haiti. They do not routinely dance with snakes in Haiti. We do that in New Orleans. They draw for Dambala. They use symbolism of centipodes to represent Dambala. People might possess Dambala and channel Dambala, but you don't see snake worship, snake dancing that much. That came straight from Temple of Python, straight from Wida Benin here to Louisiana in the early 17th century. Um, He cites the New York conspiracy of 1712 as an example of slaves implementing voodoo tactics to incite rebellion. Now, many of you are familiar with the slave rebellion that happened in New York in 1712 because we put so much emphasis on Haitian Revolution, because we put so much emphasis on maroon culture in Jamaica and Nanny and Maroons and maroon culture in Brazil. We don't talk about maroon culture here because too many of us don't know it. Too many of us are not willing to read these books. I've I've named at least five (laughs) since the beginning of the show and pull out this detail. You know, you're waiting for me to do it for you. And I don't don't mind doing it. Williams also describes the ideology of obia. And I talked about obia the other day as sort of a, I don't want to say a corruption, but a, when we look at Ghana uh, and we look at words like dibia, 
the spiritual practitioner is, is Dibia uh, among certain ethnic groups in, in Ghana. Uh, but then when we look at Obi in Ghana, Nigeria, Obi takes on a completely another meaning depending on what ethnic group you're from. Um, so Obia is a sort of a, a amalgamation of, of those two concepts. Obia is an evolution of Dibia and Ob uh, as a practice that's now sort of encapsulated in this word Obia. And it might look better if we used I instead of E. But we got to eat today. And Obia, Williams believes, has transformed into a cult of devil worship that still invokes fear amongst African Americans. And, and note, he said African Americans, not Caribbeans, not Jamaicans. He said African Americans. This is evident in their use of Obia man as an effigy for evil. Because, like Puckett, Williams does not include as a source any slave interviews or historical documents. Even when he discusses the various uprisings, his information is speculative, relying more on rumors and gossip than on concrete evidence. This article is nonetheless helpful in the depiction of the use of supernatural agency among enslaved Africans. Puckett, New Bell Niles, Folk Beliefs of the Southern Negro, New York, Kinziger Publishing. Now, in response to the criticism that folk tales may not be a viable enough source for historical analysis, William Coleman, in his work, Tribal Talk, Tribal Talk, colon, Black Theology, Herman, now, now help me with this word, hermeneutics, hermeneutics, H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S, hermeneutics. I know what it means, I just can't pronounce it. And African-American ways of telling the story. So let me say it again. William Coleman, Tribal Talk, colon, Black Theology, Herm, hermeneutics and African-American ways of telling the story argues that these oral stories are the best means of understanding the slave experience. Coleman studied slave folklore in order to understand the slave culture with a specific focus on activities and beliefs that impacted contemporary black theology. Coleman discussed the idea of spirit possession portrayed in stories and compares it to the convergent experience and Holy Ghost power emphasized in modern black religions, the black church. Although Coleman's use of oral histories authoritatively depicts slave life, he takes considerable liberty when drawing parallels between them in contemporary black theology. Like Roberto, Coleman's commitment to his argument too often pushed him to stretch rationalities into correlations or, correla or correlations. His assessment is still useful for 
demonstrating how to analyze folklore. These secondary sources have shown that slave magic was significant in slave society. From Robitaille, one sees the emergence of a unique slave religion from African traditions. Shiro expands on Robitaille's findings to discuss the specific practices of conjuration and voodoo in relation to Christianity. Fet offers side of slave magic, the curative effects of enslaved people and an explanation of their applications. Puckett, Williams, and Coleman all discussed the value of folklore and reveal how it was adapted as fact into a slave's daily life. These sources all offer insight into the existence of magic in the African-American slave experience. However, they do not illuminate the perception of the supernatural world on the slave's part. This author's own analysis of slave interviews, folklore, music, slave owners, journals, and missionary records illustrates how slaves have both understood and practiced magic within their communities. The most prevalent theme associated with slave culture's understanding of the supernatural was the belief in the existence of flying spirits who interfered in their lives of humans. Slave society focused on a high God who was deemed the superior creator of the world and all forms found on it, often associated with the sky. This God was believed to be too important to meddle in the affairs of humanity. So instead, Bond's people held that spirits, due to their capability of flight, monitored the matters of the world and thus directly impacted everyday lives. This understanding of one true God and his lesser spirits was derived from West African religious belief in an omnipresent being that transcended ritual relationships with humans. William Bosman, a Dutch slave trader, who documented his experiences with the African slave trade or the Atlantic slave trade, describes the beliefs of the Africans he encountered. And he says, it is certain that they believe a God created the universe and therefore vastly prefer him before their idol God. But yet they do not pray to him or offer any sacrifices. God, they say, is too high exalted above us and too great to think of mankind. Wherefore, he commits the government of their world to their spirits. It was these entities to which slaves attributed the power to interfere in the daily life activities of humanity and the power to govern the forces of both good and evil. According to slave testimonies, these spirits could be benevolent or malevolent as humans, as well as willful or arbitrary. Therefore, enslaved people believed it imperative to maintain good relationships through dutiful praise, sacrifice, and obedience. Nearly every interview conducted by the Federal Writers Project with former slaves in 1936, uh, let me say that again, it's called the Federal Writers Project, 
which was done with former slaves in 1936, included some references to flying spirits. Interviewee Cecilia Small recounted, long as I can remember, Mrs., I've been hearing about flying spirits down on the Blackbeard, uh, Blackbeard Lund, there was a big horse which was an evil spirit. They say that this spirit was living there because Bob Delegar gonna neglect them. Sometimes those spirits put spells on you, fix you. The antebellum slave folk tales also emphasize belief in the power of flying spirits to impact day-to-day experiences. These tales added to the notion that spirits were capable of animating objects in nature to affect the welfare of people. One instance is the story of Sister Becky's baby, wherein a young woman is sold away from her baby, but but through the assistance of a rabbit inhabited by spirit, she is reunited with her child. And although this folktale aims to provide hope and inspiration to people, despite the restraints of slavery, it also demonstrates the manner in which a belief in spirits permeated slaves' daily lives. The most prominent form of flying spirits found in slaves' perception of the supernatural was a witch. Witches were believed to cause illness or death simply by eating an individual's soul. Many stories feature spirit of the witch taking on an animal form in order to fly to gather where the spirits of other witches congregated and to consume a soul. Former slave Serena Wilde recalled, witches can turn themselves into any shape, an insect, a cat, or a dog, or a kind, any kind of animal. They can go through any kind of hole and them to get you. If the animal was killed when possessed by a witch's spirit, the sleeping body of that witch was to die at the same instant. They also believed that the spirit of a witch was capable of leaving her body nocturnally for the purpose of riding her victim. And she goes on to say, now that's some real accounts. <laughs> Ex-slave Robert Phillips says, I've been read lots of times by witches. Just sit on your chest and ride you. You woke up and you feel like you're smothering. If you can get the circulation and true off of you, it's all right. If you're not dead or possessed. And I think he said, if you can get the succubus or succulation, which might be a reference to both male and female spirits that ride you, if you can get them off of you, you can resist possession, if not death. And according to slave testimonies and folk tales, witches were predominantly female. However, they affected both genders for a variety of reasons, including lust, revenge, jealousy. Possession by witches was widely used to explain and justify a sudden change in behavior. Many stories, a wife or a husband 
blaming their spouse's adulterous conduct and shifting moods on bewitchment. Slaves thought that you could save someone from a witch's spell by sprinkling salt and pepper on the presumed skin of the individual witch's form. This act would prevent the witch's reentry into her body. This belief came from the widely circulated folktale called We Winnie Witch. In this tale, Mama Granny filled Winnie, We Winnie Witch's skin, which was removed prior to riding her victims, with hot pepper. When We Winnie returned to re-enter her body, she was burnt to a crisp. Sticks such as Mama Granny's may have helped create the profession of witch hunting, which is discussed often in recounts of the slave experience. They actually had witch hunters, not just slave hunters, but they had witch hunters um, during enslavement, during the antebellum South. And so if you were suspected of, of, of witchery, it's very akin to what's happening in Ghana and, and parts of Africa right now, where Old people, young people, primarily women or people of the five genders who are accused of, of witchcraft and are then publicly killed, publicly dismembered, publicly, you know, set a fire. You know, they, they throw a, a tire over you full of gasoline and, and set, you know, and set it afire. So um, this is not a new concept. This isn't a modern concept and indeed has a root in antebellum slavery um, Atlantic slave trade and, and quite possibly predates that because we know the Arab slave trade predates that what is distinct about the slave perspective of a witch is that she was always looked at in terms of being a riding spirit and never in human form her skin was alluded to but no story or narrative referred to the witch as a person. She was described as inflicting harm through her soul, not a heart. This differed from the European and American image of a witch, who in that likeness was seen as a person in the same lineage as the devil. Her association with Satan was absent from the slave's impression of a witch, probably because the devil is a largely Christian concept. Thus, slaves' opinions of the witch as a spirit who sheds her skin and rides her victims nocturnally is unique. Um, and we still have remnants of that idea, that attitude, that understanding of um, witchcraft today, and particularly in the Black community. It's also reinforced, of course, through the church. <laughs> Neophyte Boku, are you still with me? Okay. Yes, I sir. Okay. Sitting on the edge of my seat. Um, I was. There was a couple things that actually stood out to me um, that I, I definitely wanted to uh, add to was uh, uh, the name of the. the you said it was uh, Herma. Um, hello. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Um, it it eludes me right now. Um, okay, Herma, hold, um, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. 
give me a second, cuz I think it's important that we highlight this word. Because yeah, I, yeah. I know what it is. It, it has a, con- a connection to Tahuti or, yeah, or, or thought, soft in, in ancient Egypt. Of course, the, the, the Europeans translated it into uh, Hermes. Um, somebody look this word up for me. It's in the chat. That's the word. So it's it, it's uh, her- it's a weird uh, it's a weird connection, but it's not so weird because there's a symbol still used um, today. Um, Hermes is known for his um, the Hermetic seal or the the sign of Hermes, which is still used in the um, in hospitals. Always is often confused with Asclepius. Asclepius' staff and Hermes' staff are two different staffs, but they both involve the snake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if well, that um, that name was associated with that. And I, I guess I'm assuming right. So, so. so the internet is saying hermeneutics. 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 Hermeneutics, okay, yeah. or hermeneutics, or hermeneutics. Uh-huh. Yes, um, I'm thinking of the, the etymology of the name would have to allude to Hermes, Hermes still being um, uh, a, a different version of the same uh, mythological or African god, Tehuti or Thoth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Hermes Trismesicus, the, um, the thrice great, uh, greatest, or mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. thrice living uh this is this is uh, if you want an example. This is in the Lion King, the baboon. This is uh, uh, Rafiki, which is still the same name in African. It's Rafiki, all right. Same God, same person, right. same same translation. That's right, that's right. And 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 if you all will allow me to, I'm going to take um, just a brief intermission, and during that, I want to share some new information with you. Um, I'm working on a project right now. In fact, we're going to air a conversation about spirituality and religion with Rise of the Orisha. Rise of the Orisha. Uh, You can find him on YouTube, Rise of the Orisha, with an H, O-R-I-S-H-A, Rise of the Orisha. You can also find him in Instagram, Rise of an, of the Orisha, and I'm actually going to do a on-air Instagram live interview with him on Friday, I believe six o'clock p.m. Six o'clock p.m. of uh, Central Standard Time. And so he's already done sort of some um, trailers, which I thought I had set up properly <laughs> before going into the show. So that's what you hear me doing now, trying to sort of get, get his trailers together. Um, so I'm going to share first, the first one is 12 minutes long, I, but, but it'll keep you glued to the screen. It's called Oya, Oya, Rise of the Orisha. It's a full short movie. Um, and, and it gives you an introduction and in some of the things that he's working on uh, some of the things that we're talking about right now, uh, ATR, Orisha, ancestral religion and tradition, but then shape-shifting and being uh, able to take on other forms. 
extending our power, really, um, and our understanding of our power as, as humans, and then taking that, carrying that uh, to another level. So I'm going to share that. Thank you so much, um, Shandra C., for that. Now, give me a second, uh, Block Talk Radio, forgive me. I'm trying to get my uh, my setup together. Okay, it's called Oya, Rise of the Orisha. And I'm going to be working with this brother, um, Rise of the Orisha, come Friday, 6 p.m. Central Standard, I mean, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Central Standard Time, on his Instagram page and on my Instagram page. Shit. 
Not to say, Daddy. To go on the I believe this. 
Excellent production. It's a great tease to what's coming, to what's forthcoming. And I'm truly grateful and honored to be a part. Just know it's coming. Hashtag just know it's coming. Friday, 5 p.m. Central Standard Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. (laughs) 
I like the idea that we are not just embracing ATR and, and traditional African religions, but that we are expanding in, into literary pursuits and cinematographic pursuits and artistic pursuits and, and, and evolving our culture, really, to, to a new place. And let's, and let's be clear, if it's not already, already clear, revolutionary revival of hoodoo, New Orleans voodoo, secrets and recipes. My goal is, always has been, continues to be the, the rebirthing of a voodoo that was once legendary, that was once feared, that was once greatly sought after, that belongs to us, that exists in our blood that exists in the, in the DNA. And as gods, as goddesses, we indeed have the ability to create and recreate our own reality. We don't have to just be ghosts and shapeshifters and, and mimics, you know, in, in this greater society in which we live in today. Uh, I don't want to get political or, or touch on the daily news or, who's on TV or not on TV, but you all know what's happening. It's a whole lot of craziness happening (laughs) right now, all around us on many levels. And so our our very idea of reality is being toyed with, is being played with. And and like witches, ghosts were another form of flying spirits that held a significant position impacting the daily activity of Southern plantation life. In his journal, Runaway Slave, William Grimes, in his journal, Runaway Slave, William Grimes describes ghosts as common as pig tracks. However, ghosts, unlike witches, were not a source of fear, often called dopies, dopies. Ghosts were rarely considered evil or dangerous. Sanja, I know you, you're familiar with the word dopey, but were seen more as cunning and sly tricksters and portrayed as schemers who played tricks on unsuspecting humans. They were understood as spirits of the deceased who returned to haunt the living as an imposing nuisance. And I often describe get day in Haitian voodoo and, and to some degree New Orleans or Louisiana voodoo um, as uninvited, they are your unsettled deceased, your unsettled ancestors, the issues that we don't deal with, that we don't confront, that we don't heal, fix, or repair. They don't just die with the deceased. And so we pour libation. We, we present offering to keep them still, to keep them quiet, to keep them from interfering in any negative way on our living experience while prayerfully considering that they're being healed, repaired, renewed on the other side to indeed reincarnate or to move on as a much more helpful presence. The stories in Mules and Men, Mules, M-U-L-E-S, Mules and Men by Zora Neale Hurston, compilation of African-American folktales feature ghosts repeatedly causing mischief, ranging from stealing another slave's umbrella to merely irritating a slave 
for hiding all the plantation tools, thus stalling production. And despite the fact that ghosts were mostly depicted lightheartedly, there are several references to ghosts as evildoers. Some stories discuss the ghosts of cruel masters who return from the grave to continue to torment the slaves. In the autobiography of a former slave, in his autobiography, former slave Lewis Clark, with the E, recalls, I was actually as much afraid of my master when dead as I was when he was alive. Others suggested that ghosts of the dead had the ability to afflict harm specifically by seeking revenge among those who harmed them while they were alive. The folk story, Murder's Swamp, Murder's Swamp, is about a river basin where someone was viciously murdered. It is visited at night by beings of an unearthly make, whose groans and death struggles were heard in the darkest recesses of the woods. Anyone who went there never came back. Likewise, stories concerning the ghosts of dead slaves returning to demand justice from their white oppressors was very popular among the enslaved. Furthermore, many slave testimonies, much as Clark, cite numerous rituals used for protection from ghosts, which shows a belief that some ghosts are indeed malicious. Tactics that were often used included burying a corpse face down, to prevent its return from the grave, placing a broom at the front door to keep the ghost from entering, and scattering mustard seeds on the floor of the room to confine the ghost. These references to ghost-proofing demonstrate the spiritual aura that slaves believe ghosts possessed. I'm also familiar with a story, an African story of keeping a broom near the door to detect a thief And indeed if someone breaks Into your house They can't steal Because they're too consumed With, with, with the broom and, and sweeping So there's a root There's a foundation To this story And, and it grew and, and continues to grow In our communities Often undetected Unaware You know we, we pass it down Generationally Sometimes we lose connection to what it means, what it's really in reference to, but they're not just folk tales, in my opinion. They're not just nursery rhymes, in my opinion, and they indeed encapsulate our story. Come on, Neophyte Bocor. I was wondering if anybody caught that reference as You're breaking up on us. Can't hear you. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I, I can tell. You're not coming in clearly. We'll give it another shot momentarily. Yeah, you sound like an alien, and, and, and there's no okay. English... Oh, okay. Now I heard you say okay. Yeah, you're you're gone. I think. No, it's it's not coming in, bro. We can't hear you right now. Okay, 
We can't hear you right now. So, so try again in, in a few minutes when, when you get past whatever zone you're in right now. In addition to ghosts and witches, ancestors were as powerful a class of spirits as any others included in the slaves' paranormal belief system. Within the diverse forms of slave culture, documentation references abound to reverent ancestors, those who died long ago and those of more most recent memory. It is believed that as custodians of custom and law, the ancestors had the power to intervene in present affairs by granting fertility, good health, prosperity to their descendants. It was thought that if a person neglected the veneration of their ancestors, they would be at risk for sickness, misfortune, even death. Thus, ancestral service served as watchful guardians. I'm sorry. Ancestors served as watchful guardians of the customs of the people and would invoke punishment if anyone, particularly their kinsmen, deviated. As a result of these strong convictions, a large part of slave culture was centered on the spirits of the ancestors. In her autobiography, in her autobiography, incidents in the life of a slave girl. Incidents in the life of a slave girl. Harriet Jacobs describes the prevalence of ancestral spirits in a slave's daily life. She writes that the living never forget that they are the trustees of the dead. For the dead are always watching to see that the living preserve what their forefathers established. And since the dead have power to bestow either blessings or adversity, the welfare of the living is felt to be bound up with the faithful performance of ancient custom. Proper adulation of one's ancestors has also a prominent theme exposed by slave folklore. Many of the tales, such as the well-known Burr Rabbit that Neophyte Bokor referenced a little bit earlier, depict an inferior animal gaining strength, power, wisdom through communicating with his ancestral kin. That's what Br'er Rabbit is all about. So let me say it again. Proper adulation of one's ancestors has also a prominent theme exposed by slave folklore. Many of the tales, such as the well-known Burr Rabbit tales depict an inferior animal gaining strength, wisdom, power through communicating with his ancestral kin. Furthermore, this obligatory, obligatory, obligatory worship between man and his ancestors is evident in the emphasis slave society placed on burial rituals. Improper or incomplete funeral rites can interfere with or delay the interest of the deceased into the spiritual world and may cause his or her soul to linger about restless and malevolent. Before a funeral was complete, several customs must be observed, including proper preparation of the body, 
ritual mourning after burial, and strict rules pertaining to varying levels of mourning. It was expected that the graves of the deceased were to be lavishly decorated with personal effects. Thus, slave society's emphasis on burial rites, along with this oratory lesson, supports the prominence of ancestral apparitions in slaves. Understanding of supernatural agency. Thus, slave society's emphasis on burial rites, along with its oratory lessons, supports the prominence of ancestral apparitions in slaves, understanding of supernatural agency. Although witches and ancestors and ghosts are vital to understanding the enslaved perception of the world of spirits, it is their participation in the art of conjure that most links their beliefs about supernaturalism to their everyday lives. Conjuration was a magical tradition in which spiritual power was invoked for various purposes, such as healing, protection, desire, and self-preservation. It has the means by which the slaves communicate with and manipulate these spirits they so adherently believe. While conjure possessed multiple functions, its most salient had to do with practices of racial oppression. The significance of conjuration as a deterrent against slave owner oppression is ubiquitous in slave narratives, personal testimonies, interviews, and especially folklore. Abolitionist and writer Henry Clay Bruce who had been enslaved in Virginia, described in his journal a community of slaves that hired the services of a conjurer to prevent their deportation and removal to plantations in the Deep South. The conjurer's powers, they believed, obstructed the slave owner's attempt to separate them, for at the last minute, the scheduled relocation was aborted. Such defenses against psychological and physical assault of slavery were essential for many African Americans. Stories of conjurers who subdued whites were prominent in the narratives of slaves and former slaves. Clara Walker, as an ex-bondswoman from Georgia, told of a black witch doctor who punished a slaveholder by creating a mud doll, sticking a needle in its back. Sure enough, his master gone down with the misery to his back. And the witch doctor let, let the thorn stay until he thought his master got enough punishment. Conjuration thus was the manifestation of bonds people's spiritual or supernatural beliefs enacted in their everyday lives. It was a device by which the enslaved could utilize their understanding of spirits who interfere in their lives to their own benefit. Black Americans utilized conjuration not only because they saw it as a valuable source of retaliation, but also because they believed that the supernatural realm was a source of empowerment. The story of old Bab Russ is a perfect example of the way in which slaves had used conjuring to attain a degree of control. 
The story featured a slave named Bob or Bab Russ, B-A-B, Bab Russ, who used conjure to make any girl love him in spite of herself, no matter who she might be engaged to or walking with. Additionally, a special status was attributed or ascribed to the supernatural practitioners who were capable of conjuration. They possessed the most influential and well-respected roles within the plantation community. A 19th century journalist in North Carolina who was writing an expose on plantation life described a bondswoman as a goddess whose slaves believed to be in communication with occult powers, for her utterances were accepted as oracles and piously heeded. Conjuration can thus be understood as invoking the spiritual powers to revise conditions of human existence. And again, these are stories that are not told enough, that many are just not aware of, Uh, It benefits some people to maintain the idea that we were powerless and that we had no no recourse, that we didn't fight back, uh, that we just sort of went along because the geographic conditions, the weather conditions, the political and governmental conditions of being enslaved in, in America was very different from Cuba. Brazil, Panama, Jamaica. And so what looks like compliance, you know, could very well be us hiding, masking greater intent. And and that's why it was so important that we be demonized, our religion and our beliefs be demonized, our practices be demonized. Your desire to want to acknowledge your ancestors and those who came before you is demonized to prevent empowerment. Um, a caller, when you're ready, just press the number one and I'll let you in. If, if you have a, a question, comment, um, area code 770. If you want to speak, just press the number one on your keypad and I'll open your mic and um, question, comment, um, and bring you in. And when, and when you do that, you're going to need to turn down my voice so I can't hear it because <laughs> I just tested your line and, and you got me turned up nice and loud and, and I appreciate and I appreciate that um neophyte Bokor, are you in range are you or are you still yeah I think I, I should be in range um am I coming in clear yeah you're, you're not an alien now you, your alien okay. identity has receded you're human again come on in yeah that um uh, that reference about the broom being by the door uh, reminds me of uh, some of the folklore behind the reason why when you jumped, uh, jumped the broom or, or jumped the threshold, you had a makeshift threshold because most slave quarters didn't have one, mm-hmm. but they did have a broom mm-hmm. and it was often passed down. Your threshold was passed down. It, it sounds like it correlates with that that whole thing. I'm, Honestly, I, I'm a little oblivious to to the tie between those two, but they sound like they are um, uh, connected. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there was great power attributed to a broom. 
Uh, and, and many of the women in the chat are, are now sharing that. Sandra C., uh, Denise Preston, how you doing, beloved? Uh, Dana Voodoo Creole. Um, many of us, I believe, have some experience with grandma or even grandpa in some cases in, in the broom. I, I know in my family, on the Broomfield side, having a new broom over the door at the beginning of the year brought not just prosperity, but protection, protection from drama, mm-hmm. evil, wickedness, even witchcraft. Um, so, yeah, I believe there's a definite link there between the broom, the symbolism of the broom. Uh, we, we could even say it was one of the things that we had access to, you know, that, that might right, not, right. We, we that, had to make ours. Yeah, that might not have been very obvious in terms of our connection to spirit, you know, and, and to magic, if you will. Mm-hmm. And dominant in the depiction of, of slaves' use of conjuration and voodoo is the link between conflict and supernaturally induced misfortune. Most accounts of these spiritual powers of affliction were precipitated by a source of conflict or emotional distress, usually depicting conjure as the source of the trouble. For example, in personal narrative of former slave, Hannah Wilde, she discussed the story she heard about how a wife became completely deaf and lazy with headaches because her husband left her while she was pregnant with their first child. The story considers her to have been conjured. This tale, like many others, provides a spiritual framework in which she interprets her misfortune. A similar rationalization is depicted in the folktale Poe Sandy, wherein Poe Sandy, the slave, was turned into a tree because she created a lust spell for a married man. It became evident here, too, that the supernaturalism serves as a source of her misfortune. This reoccurring theme that adversely or adversity or conflict in one's reflection, supernatural agency is prevalent throughout slave narratives and folklore. So the, the problem could be blamed on conjure, but the fix could also be, be blamed on, on conjure depending on how it was presented, how it was used. And and let us not forget, even in the tone of these of these documents, um, our story was not being told fully, completely, 360 degrees. The, these stories were being presented very narrowly by way of the authors, the people who wrote these words down, the people who, who documented this in the context of language, and mindset of that of that day, you know. Today it's it's politically incorrect to call you nigger to your face, okay? But I mean, who doesn't feel that from Trump? <laughs> who doesn't feel that you know from some of the people who are in control right now? Uh, you don't always have to say something to project it at people. You don't always have to say something out loud to project it. And, and when we think about enslaved culture. Much of what was happening was not spoken in, in the present moment. It was projected through your eyes and projected through your hands and projected directly from your body. 
You know, you couldn't go out into the field and, and tell overseer, you know, I'm about to curse you, you know, without threat of your life. You know, so often things went unsaid and were then projected. Uh, Neophyte, did you have a comment? I heard you unmic and then you mic'd again. Uh, just trying to make sure I was still um, being heard. That's all. Yeah, you're uh, This definitely um, taking in a lot of lessons um, today because I, I kind of got up this morning with a negative. Um, there, was, there was just a feeling of negativity surrounding my, my, the whole beginning of my morning um, I, due to the fact that I was listening to something that was signed into the, um, a, a bill that was signed by the, the, the orange traffic cone this morning. Um, basically, they're pa- um, patriotizing the, the lessons. Mm-hmm. Right, they're, he's putting that into enactment where they're taking out and kind of watering down, washing out all of the history that is deemed to be too um, too negative to the patriotic narrative. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, he's further whitewashing the, our history. I mean, it wasn't already whitewashed enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just. Uh, I was overwhelmed with it. And I was, so I was like, oh, okay, I'm out today to try to contribute as much as I can to our history as I possibly can muster today. I, I, will, I would even like to say and offer you to make this your, your mantra, that you would seek to alter life, that you would seek to alter our experience right now. Right yes, now. Because the most powerful moment that we have in time space is right now. And right now, there's so much of that energy that you just uh, introduced into the conversation. Listen, I said I was going to broadcast, get up Monday, broadcast, and not talk about last week. Not talk sure. about why y'all didn't me Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But it had a lot to do with what you just said. The energy is so thick right now. The negative energy, the wicked energy, the racism, the, the evil, the jealousy, the, the wanting to do harm to people, the backstabbing, the, the nastiest, nastiest rumors you can imagine is being projected right now. And, and anyone who's spiritual, anyone who's tuned in, anyone whose third eye is open and your antennas are out, you feel it. And you know it's not you. You know it's not your stuff. You know. But you know it's, it's like fog. Real thick fog. <laughs> like grit. That we can feel. That, that's palatable. That's present. And I'm finding that spiritual people. Regardless of your religion. Truly spiritually in tune people. Feel it. And the unfortunate thing is. Oh my goodness. We're going to feel it beyond. November 3rd. No matter who wins, no matter what direction this goes into, we're at war. We're at war for our very spiritual lives, for our very black lives. If given the opportunity, they're going to turn back civil rights as much as possible. They're going to turn back 
the rights of women as much as possible. They're going to turn back gay rights as much as possible if, if people don't act, and I mean act, right now. All this witchery and, 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 and conning and conjuring and directed somewhere useful right now. Right now. And, and, and the shape-shifting that's going on. Um, man, I've never seen this level of shape-shifting before. Just right out in your face. Just, just right out in the media, right out in, in the middle of our, our political system, you know, and we've gotten so used to it, almost like crime in the community. We, we've accepted it as a part of the reality. We, we've accepted it as a part of what's to be expected. And I just can't. <laughs> I just can't. And I can't believe the level of of racism and hatred and wickedness and evil that, that is happening right in front of us. And, you know, the media does their job. You know, they kind of talk about it, but they're also popularizing it. They're also making their money off of you viewing it, you know, and, and listening to it every day, you know, but it keeps this foolishness right in our face, right in our face. And right now, I only have energy for ministry. I only have energy for ancestral work. I only have energy for moving things forward, and particularly for those of us who get it. There, there are going to be that voice that says, it's, you're too soft, you're too soft. There's going to be those voices that say, you're too hard, you're too hard. I'm talking about my reality, okay? You're too soft, you know, you're not authentic, you're not giving it. But then on the other hand, I got this other audience that's saying you're giving it, you're revealing it, you're sharing it with the white folks, you're sharing it with the world. And then there's that gap in the middle of people who get it, who appreciate it, who want me to be present. Who want to want to know why you weren't here? Why I wasn't here yesterday? You know, and so those are the people that I feed. A closed mouth don't get fed. A mouth that chooses not to show up to the table don't get fed. I, I, I feed the hungry. I feed the needy, not the greedy. I, I, I feed those who want to grow, want to evolve. And, you know, test me if you will. People will always do that. But, but I don't like the idea that voodoo is only as believable as its most darkest manifestation. Shouldn't have to have a body count. Shouldn't have to talk about killing folks, harming folks, blocking folks, stopping folks. For you all to accept this voodoo. That's not why I'm here. And many of those who are here, particularly those right here in this chat, they're acknowledging their ancestors. They're doing their work. They're connected, you know, in a way that's empowering. And so I show up for you. I show up for you. The haters going to do what they want to do. The liars are going to do what they want to do. The wicked is going to do what they want to do. 
I think the one thing that we learned from from the great justice um, is consistency and not giving up and being present every day. As long as you're, as long as you're at the table and you can talk, you have a voice, but you got to be at the table. You got to be able to speak your truths, create and recreate your reality with your mouth and commit to being present, connect to being present. Ashe, Ashe, thank you so much. Um, it's been a great two hours, y'all. Now, if y'all got more to say, <laughs> more to offer, come on in. Um, I invite you to continue to do your work. Uh, those of you who have not connected with me, I'm, I'm available to do ancestor work and divination. I'm available to do readings and consultation. Um, the house is indeed open to pre-planned, predetermined, well thought out appointments. Beloved, you can't show up on Saturday and say, I'm in town for a weekend. Can I come see you? You just can't. I'm doing more than podcasts. I'm doing more than this. I'm I'm doing PBS. I'm doing the Travel Channel. I'm doing Nat Geo. I'm doing the History Channel. I'm doing more than this. I'm the king and leader of authentic New Orleans rooted. Please. Some of y'all know y'all laughing right now because you don't understand this. This is my reality. Please do not drive across country. That has happened. Do not drive several states. That has happened. And show up at my door and expect a seating. I just can't do it. And especially in the season of coronavirus. Okay? Now, I am open and available for your virtual appointments, your virtual consultations. I'm actually going to move this computer to the other side of the house so that y'all can get a better view of the new space, <laughs> you know, if, if you would like to see that, if that's important to you. But um, no, the house is open, but under the strictest COVID protocols, 90 proof or stronger, 90 proof or stronger, Florida water, white candles, things that, that I will enumerate in my email responses for your appointments. Always send an email, divineprince at houseofthedivineprince.com and I will gladly arrange an appointment with you, but you just can't show up. Uh, come on, uh, Neil Five, of course. Uh, just wanted to add to that um, 90 proof. You uh, said, said it the strongest right there. Also, Watch for, for what um, type of alcohol is hitting this market right now. Mm. You got two tif- you got two types of alcohol hitting the market right now, rubbing alcohol. Uh, one of which is like a, a a methanol that's being introduced. You can tell because it doesn't quite sit right. And, you know, it just it it. Methanol is not supposed to be used that. It's distilled alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Distilled alcohol is different from methanol. methanol. Methanol, technically, if you really want to take it back to, to historic uh, uh, reverence, 
is the same reason why you have the rumor of the vampire in itself. You ever heard of a dead ringer? It's because people were accidentally consuming methanol when they were trying to brew their uh, their alcohol beverages, food legging. And that same process is being put out here with rubbing our hands and stuff with it and wondering why people are, are quote unquote, dropping dead. That's right. After the, it, it, it's because it's methanol being it put out here. That's right. That's right. I, I, I can't stress it enough. Yeah. I, got, I have a bottle of I have a bottle of it right now that I, I I had it and I read the back of the label and it it read the right ingredients, mm-hmm. but the ingredients didn't match the uh, the scent. So I had to go a little bit deeper and start reading the combination of the chemicals involved in the process of this distilling. And sure enough, there's my answer. It's methanol. So I had to. I'm getting ready to throw it out as we speak. Yeah, it it, it can kill you. It's a poison. Um, Eric code. Uh, hold on, Eric code seven seven zero. Seven seven zero. Your mic is now open. Who's calling and where are you calling from? I'm calling from Pittsburgh, PA. My name is Christy. How you doing? Hi everybody. Thank you. Thank you. I'm doing great. I like your energy. Thank you so much for calling in. I just wanted to elaborate on the fact that um, the ancestors, even though they they ascended, they were here to help you. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to elaborate on my experience that I had when I called upon them. And I'd be calling upon them a lot. But this this one blew my even my children's mind and their friends that was in the house. Um, I had a situation where... I was asleep, but something told me, get up. So I woke up, and I heard a truck backing up, and I'm like, please don't be the utility company. And lo and behold, it was the light company. And the children was like, they're outside. So I immediately got up and went to my ancestors' table I have in my bedroom, asking for their help. So my utility, my lights wouldn't get cut off because I was a little behind. Make a long story short, as they was peeking through the blinds, looking at the um, the employee, he walked up to the um, fence, but you had to go through my neighbor's yard to get to our um, our um, meters. Mm-hmm. And as I'm sitting at the table talking to the ancestors. He froze for like about two minutes. Yeah. Back, backed up, walked to the truck, got in the truck, sat there for five more minutes, and pulled off. <laughs> yes, yes. I like that. I like that. In real he, time, right in your face. Yes. Sir. Ancestors ain't yes. playing no games with nobody. They for us right now. They are not playing yes, no games. Yes, they are. They want, they want their children back, and they want them now. The veils are open right now. Yeah. And, and as we go into this this season of fall, Halloween, you know, we're going into a time of the veils being thin anyway. And, and I've said before. In fact, I've done whole videos about the veils being thinnest. 
around Christmas time. It's a reason people get emotional and sometimes negative or sometimes extremely positive during Christmas time. And it's not just the lights and, 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 and excitement and sort of the reminiscing. There's indeed a veil, a spiritual portal that opens during fall going, going into the winter, and particularly for the northern hemisphere. And so this corona and, and the, all these crazy hurricanes, listen, we dodge in hurricanes in Louisiana and Texas every week. <laughs> it's a snowball hurricane coming. Yeah. You know, it, it keeps your emotions elevated. It keeps your hormones elevated. It keeps your, um, your spiritual defenses of survival elevated because you're on high alert. Okay, is this coming? Am I going to have to leave? Am I going to lose my housing? Is my neighborhood going to flood? You know, and, and you get elevated like, like you in war-like condition, like we in slavery-like condition. And so many of you are feeling things and got emotions going on. And some of it is showing up online now. It's showing up in your tweets. It's showing up in your Instagram. It's showing up in what you're talking about on Facebook, you know. But we've got to come together spiritually and particularly around the ancestors to ground this power, to ground this energy in us and around us in a way that's not only to our benefit, but carries us forward. Even our ancestors see an opening right now for us to move forward in a way that we've never done before. And so this challenge now with Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing, may she rest in heaven, and and now the, the conservatives really coming for our rights, they're coming for our very lives. They're literally coming for our very lives. And, and if they had their way, they would turn the clock back way past Obama. They want to turn the clock back to the 50s. They want to turn the clock back to the 50s. So we've, we've got to be as tuned in as, as, as our caller <laughs> to the presence yes. and the awareness of our ancestors and, and how we <clears throat> operate with them and how they operate with us. They're there, they're there for us. They're waiting for us to assist us in our time of need. Now, I don't be asking them for, could you help me with um, some lottery numbers? I help them when I need help. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. when I had with the court in January, um, I don't want to elaborate too much, but basically I was defending a relative in court. But before I went to court, I had all white on. I, I made sure I put all white on. And I also put in my pocket John the Conqueror root. And I told them to put this in their pocket because I've been studying and reading about um, different roots and stuff. And all I can say is when I was in court, I called everybody out, the judge, the magistrate judge, the the plaintiff, I called everybody out, and I was able to walk out of there. Yes, indeed. For, Go on, Queen, with the bad self. I walked out of there, and they was puzzled, <laughs> like, what just happened? <laughs> they said, who does that, and like, then walked out of here? <laughs> I asked the ancestors to come with us 
And also mm-hmm. had my junk, the John the Conqueror. That's why I told you to put it in your pocket, cause I had a big chunk in mine. And it went down like that. And they would still, they still talk about like she went there, she she cuts out everybody. The bailiff was eating, stood back. Yes, indeed. But I didn't use curse words. I just told them off and told them how I feel, and I don't appreciate them keep um, suppressing, oppressing the melanin dominant, mm-hmm. my melanin dominant people that look That's like the, me. Mm-hmm. I called them out because I wanted to find out a whole bunch of stuff about him later on, and which I was going to do a judicial complaint on him because he's just nitpicking, yeah. and I was going to be I mean, getting in touch with you soon. So okay. um, I need your help. <laughs> okay, well I'm here for you, beloved. Uh, whether you yep. need help or, or instruction, I'm I'm here for oh, you. I need I'm the instruction you. and the help. Because yes. we talked before, and you told me that you told me about myself. We you did a reading on me and stuff. You 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 broke it down and so I'm going to leave it at that. I don't want to say too much, but I'll be emailing you shortly. But I just Thank wanted you. to give everybody the understanding in my experience with spirituality, with calling upon the ancestors, and they all, they're there for you to back you up mm-hmm. and to help and assist you in your time of need. Mm-hmm. That's right. So thank you so much for sharing that. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, someone over the weekend suggested that I needed more celebrities to share their experience with me. Uh, as, as you don't this, need celebrities. You need factual, yeah. actual people that had experiences to come on and explain what they went through. Normal people. Yes, I agree. Thank you so much, beloved. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm surprised that um, like I always kind of uh, thought about some of the celebrities that actually practice. Um, but when you confirm that, oh, I was living. I was, I was so now, Because it confirms my suspicion already. I mean, I won't get name drop right now. But I got a list myself of, 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 of celebrities that I suspected. Because there's a few things that stood out to me. Like, hey, you look like, yeah, I think you fit the profile, bro. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. You need to turn down your uh your radio, your background noise. Yeah, um one in particular now we'll call her one name. And that's Flavor Flay. Now I don't have no proof. I don't have no proof. I don't have no evidence, but I suspect Flavor Flay and his mama are having some connection to ATR. And and, and whether they're using Orisha, whether they're using voodoo. Uh, they tapping in something, and 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 I gathered this just from props, just from the environment, just from the whole setup. You know, when when that show was on air, but even more modern shows, even more recent demonstrations, strongly strongly suggest um, people are at least trying to tap into this energy. They may not be. Officially initiated, they may not be walking in a tradition, you know, according to the protocols that we understand. 
but they're accessing and attempting to access this power in the best way that they know how in a more modern context. And sometimes it's yeah. color and sometimes it's deeper than, than, than color. I have a few more things I want to say before I uh, begin to end the show. African-American magic exists all around us today and in the past. It resonates in contemporary exhibitions of voodoo in New Orleans, the rituals at African-American religious services, and in vibrant artistic forms throughout our museums. Thus, we must try and understand African-American beliefs concerning the supernatural and where these ideals originate. Folklore, narratives, autobiographies, and interviews have much to say about what magic has meant to the nearly 4 million enslaved people who resided in the antebellum South and forged a distinct culture. And because of their existence of of forced bondage and racial persecution, their perception of magic differed greatly from their European and Euro-American counterparts. Rather than inciting common associations of fear or danger, enslaved Africans' understanding of the supernatural world served as a necessary escape and espoused notions of spiritual empowerment. And so we must begin to return to the idea of empowerment, of our, our, our very salvation being rooted in our connection to our ancestors, being rooted in, in our ability and willingness to accept their intervention even now in this most present moment in time space. Because this is really all we have is right now. We can talk about the past. We can, you know, envision the future. But what we have is right now. And so those of us who are taking this in, who are learning this, who are practicing this, who are applying this, I implore you to pass this on to your children, to your grandchildren, to your nieces, to your nephews, to your cousins. We must take voodoo out of the closet. This doesn't need to be hidden like witchcraft. This does not need to be hidden, you know, like, like the dark arts, if you will. Yes, there's a comfort zone that, there, that we have to overcome because many of your associations are still very much Christian, very much Catholic, uh, and, and no respect, though it might sound disrespectful, um, but you're still locked into what I call slave mentality. Slave thinking. So I implore you to accept your ancestors today. <laughs> I implore you to invite your ancestors today. I implore you to accept the intervention of your ancestors today to bring peace, to bring balance, to bring wholeness, to bring health, to bring wellness. When we're operating in wellness, the ideas of, of you know, Wicked magic, you know, sort of dissipate a little bit. And indeed, we need to block and protect and be able to do battle with wicked magic. We're watching wicked magic. That uh, zombie Cheeto (laughs) is some kind of wicked magic. How he got there. He didn't get there on a popular vote. Uh, Why is he there? He's certainly not there to serve 
American venture. And so we're, we're looking at some form of really wicked magic. And so we need to regain access to our powers, to our strength. I, I like the idea of Rise of Orisha, as well as Black Panther, you know, and, and many other coming productions that are making superheroes out of our tradition. And, and, and if that's another way of sort of ingraining it in culture, opening up the consciousness, opening up the third eye to what's really already in us, I embrace that. And I embrace the opportunity to be a part of that. Um, I'm going to be moving forward. All is truly and indeed a blessing. I'm certainly grateful for each and every one of you, uh, our caller and, uh, of course, Neophyte Bokor, my co-host, and, and, and many others who show up here, even when I say disagreeable things, <laughs> even when I say things you don't necessarily you know, want to hear, uh, you still support me, and, and I appreciate that love and that support. Uh, I really do. Um, I look forward to being with you again next time here on both Blog Talk Radio and um, YouTube Live, Instagram Live, Periscope, wherever you might be viewing me now, my Earth Cam page. And I'm going to end, of course, with, with a few videos. So I'm not going to just bounce out. Did you want to say something, Neil Fiber before I move on? Or are you good? Okay. All is a blessing. So let's go here and look at cleanse, cleanse, cleanse. What is happening, Dave? What is going on in the world now? And it really has to do with Babalu. We are in a pandemic now. And the Orisha that you hold, Obun, you are Omo Obun, you are beholden to clean yourself. Clean yeah. yourself well because there will be those that are attracted to you. One of your roles is to heal us. Make sure that you are clean first. Thank you. 
these shells represent the mouths of the spirits and the mouths of the ancestors. I love my brother and I, you know, he was just 
caught up in so many things and I kept trying to pull him out of those things. Well, you know, when sometimes we be hard-headed, you know, how did that affect you? I mean, it changed my life forever. A dash of cayenne to the room. Gonna put on my green grease Boil the gumbo hot and steady. Don't care if it's ready, ready. Thank you. 
Congo Square. The Omus Indians, the Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival. A sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. The Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival. Congo Square, a sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. And as the colonizers came, our host, the Omus Indians, they pushed aside our host. The colonizers came and pushed aside our host and introduced us in chains. And by the late 1700s, we somehow, recognizing the sacredness of Le Place de Congo, we somehow, and the how of our somehow persuasive methodologies is not clear at this moment. The how is not clear. How our persuasive methodologies worked is not clear at this moment. But nevertheless, even as slaves, we crafted and created a space where we could be free to be we. And thusly, thusly we countered the sacrilegiousness of the French, giving great homage to our ancestors as well as giving praise and thanks to our red-blooded brothers and sisters. This is an oral libation toast to Congo Square, to Native Americans, to our ancestors who made a circle out of a square and gave us a way to stay ourselves, save ourselves from the transformatory ugliness of America, which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life and celebrates death with crosses and crosses, double and triple crosses, the middle passage, the first cross, Christianity, the double cross, and capitalism, the ultimate triple coup de grace cross of our captivity. But the terror of crosses notwithstanding, we sang, we beat, we be, we was and is. Hail Congo Square. Congo, Congo Square. Our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated inside the beat of us. Inside the beat of us, our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated, retreated inside the beat of us until we are ready to release them into a world that we recreate, a world harrowed by the beat, be, beat, being, beating, being of black heart drums, heart beat, heart beat, heart be at this place, at this place, be heart, be 
be we beating place in new world space beating being in place in new world preserving our ancient pace our dance is the god walk our music the god talk first thing we do let's get together circle ourselves into community no beginning no end connected together and singing ringing singing in a ring second let's be original aboriginal be what we were before we became what we are be bambula dance be banza music and sing song words which have no English translation. Third, let us remember. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials, the bounce, the blood, flow, the feel, the spirit, grow, energy, must retain and pass on the essential us-ness that others want to dissipate, whip out Hello. of us. Whoa! But no matter... No matter how much of us they prohibit, no matter how much of us they prohibit, deep inside us is us. Deep inside us is us. Remains us inside and needs only the beat to set us free. The beat to free us. It is morning. A sun day, a feel, a feel without shade, but dark, dark with the people black of us in various, various, various shades, eclipsing the sun with our elegance. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember, to beat, to be. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember. To beat, to be, beat, Congo Square, be, Congo Square, beat, be, beat, be. Beat. 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 Beat.
Remember. Remember. 